Good morning, church. I would invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Nehemiah as we continue our exposition of this uh, book. We're going to be in chapter 6 today. Chapter 6, the book of Nehemiah. It is no great uh, statement or no great secret that there is always opposition to the work of God's people. We saw this several months ago as we examined Ezra chapter 4. Recently, we've seen opposition from the same antagonist in Nehemiah chapter 4. And while we can take comfort in the ultimate protection that we have from the enemies of God, knowing that we are eternally securing Christ, and while we proceed in triumph with the knowledge that even the gates of hell will not withstand the onslaught of his kingdom, we are learning through our study of Nehemiah that there has been and will continue to be severe opposition to the advance of that kingdom. We have other examples through Scripture of those who faithfully followed the Lord and who were ultimately protected from the forces of evil, but who still had to contend against the attacks of God's enemies. Remember that Satan was not allowed to take Job's life, but he was left to torment him in every possible way. Along these same lines, we see in the temptation of Christ that Satan, although he could not lay a hand on the sinless Son of God, he did seek to draw him away from his purpose of redemption by tempting him to violate God's revealed will. In our passage today, we will also find that while the enemies of God were ultimately blocked in their attempts to prevent the building of the walls around Jerusalem, they did continue to harass and to interfere with that building project through various evil tactics. So today we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. And we're going to see in this passage, I think, three clear divisions in this text. And these three divisions represent three evil tactics of the enemies of God. And from these three tactics, I would like for us to learn three lessons from Nehemiah's response. Okay? So tactic one, I'm going to give you some points here. Tactic one is going to be in the first four verses. And we're going to call tactic one, can't we just talk? That's the tactic that the enemy is using there. And the lesson that we are to take away from that is that we must beware of evil motives. The second tactic that we're going to observe in this passage comes from verses 5 through 9. And this tactic consists of public lies and personal defamation. Public lies and personal defamation. And the lesson that we need to take from this, that we learn from Nehemiah, is that we are to deny false accusations without dignifying them. So we're going to learn to deny without dignifying false accusations. And then in the third section, which is taken from verses 10 through uh, 14, we're going to see the tactic of false prophecy being used against the people of God. And our lesson, our takeaway in this third tactic will be that God's word always destroys false prophecy. We can rest in the sufficiency of scripture as it always destroys and upends false prophecy. So the way I typically work through a text is to sort of uh, 
take it apart, dissect it, um, lay out what's happening, sort of get a gist of everything. And then from there, we go back and work out the application. Well, today I'm going to take a little bit different approach in that we're going to lay out the application along with each section. So we'll take one section, we'll work through it, we'll apply it, and we'll take the lesson of Nehemiah from that, and then we'll move on to the next section, uh, so forth. And then we'll just try to bring everything together at the end with a brief conclusion. So by the time I say in conclusion, you can go ahead and put your, put your Bible up, because it'll, it'll be really short. It'll wrap up quickly once we get to the conclusion. Okay, But before we dive into God's Word today, um, we would be foolish not to seek His leading and not to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So pray with me, please, this morning. Father, as we approach the preaching hour and as we take time now to, to dig deeply into Your Word, to see what You have revealed about Yourself and what You have communicated for us, God, we ask for special guidance. We know that we are altogether incapable of comprehending and applying the incredible truths and the incredible depth of your word. And we know that it's only through the leading of the Holy Spirit that we will ever, ever approach any knowledge of you. And we pray today, God, that you would guide us. We would, you would guide our minds. You would guide our hearts. You would give us an intensity in our focus that we would remain um, just honed in on your word and what you have to say to us, Father. Give us clarity of thought as we seek to apply this to our lives. And Father, I pray specifically that you would protect me, guard me from misstep in handling your word. And Lord, that you would make the truths abundantly clear to all of us. Father, may I decrease as you increase. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so beginning in... Nehemiah 6, 1 through 4, the first tactic that we see of the enemy in this passage is, can't we just talk? And we'll begin reading in the first verse. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times and they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. So beginning in verse one, we see that this, this chapter six of Nehemiah uh, teaches us that we that, that Nehemiah has made great progress in reconstructing the wall the walls around Jerusalem. That's what we've been looking at through the first part of this book of Nehemiah. In an incredibly short amount of time, the wall was rebuilt, and all that was left to do was to install the doors and the gates. Now, to be sure, doors and gates are very important. Okay, but what we see here is that the city, while it was not secure. At this point, we can see that the builders were making tremendous progress, especially considering the distractions and the opposition that they had experienced up until this point. And we can be certain also that this progress did not go unnoticed by these enemies, these antagonists that we see in, in the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. You'll remember Sanballat and Tobiah from previous chapters in Nehemiah. 
In chapter 2, we see that they were angered by the fact that Nehemiah had even come to evaluate the plight and condition of the people of Israel. They had such a visceral hatred of the nation of Israel and of the people that even seeing someone show concern for their welfare generated increased acrimony in their hearts. Towards the end of chapter 2, Geshem is included with Sanballat and Tobiah as they begin to jeer at Nehemiah and the builders, accusing them of committing an act of rebellion against the king. Then again in chapter 4, we see Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs there. This is, uh, this, the Arabs are the ones represented by Geshem. And they were engaged in mocking and even threatening the builders to the point that Nehemiah, you'll remember, armed his construction workers. Um, I imagine John does not send construction workers out on site with AK-47s wrapped around their shoulder and handguns and, and being prepared to fight battle. But that's the, that's the atmosphere that this building project found itself in. Well, now in chapter 6, we've got yet another reference to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Um, if you're reading from the authorized version, Geshem is, is, uh, is listed there as Gashmu. And growing up in a, uh, a fundamentalist tradition um, that only acknowledged the King James Version, I still have a fondness for some of the language that, that carry over into my memorization of passages and everything from, from this Elizabethan language. And, and the, the phrase in verse 6 that we're going to get to in just a bit that says in, in the King James, Gashmuth saith it was always a, a funny line for me to read, and uh, I, I, I never forget that. But anyway, we, we've got this picture of these enemies of God once again, um, angry at the Jews, bearing a hatred toward the Jews, and doing everything within their power to prevent the progress that was inevitable by the providence of God. Well, in verse 2, we see that these antagonists have sent a message to Nehemiah asking for a meeting. In military terms, they wanted a parlay ostensibly to discuss grievances and to seek a nonviolent resolution. Well, in reality, Nehemiah conveys through Scripture that he has rightly perceived their malicious intentions toward him. Notice, this request to talk happens only after their plans to physically stop the work of God has failed. Why didn't Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs just attack and stop Nehemiah from the building? The, the, the people were extremely vulnerable. You'll remember from previous chapters, they were surrounded on all sides. It must be that God had prevented any direct attack. And certainly that's what we see confirmed in Nehemiah 4.15. It says there, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Again, in verse 16 of this chapter, we're going to see a similar sentiment. We're going to see there that when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So because these enemies had no confidence in a direct assault, they resorted to more subtle tactics, and that's what these three tactics are going to be about today. They had asked Nehemiah to meet him in Hakifirim, in the city of Ono. His response was essentially, oh no, I will not go to Ono. Then in verse 3, we see that the reason for his unwillingness to meet and to talk with these God-haters was the fact that he was occupied with a far more important task. Remember this rhetorical question that he asks in verse 3, why should I stop doing the work of God in order to hang out with you? I love rhetorical questions. 
I, I really do. I, they, they get at the heart of an issue so quickly and so directly. And I'm nothing if not blunt. Um, so I, I love the direct nature that rhetorical questions set up truth for us. Um, we, we used to attend a church when we lived in Indiana, and we had a gentleman in that congregation, uh, Brother Ray. And Brother Ray loved to answer rhetorical questions. And he sat right down front. He sat right down here where Alyssa would be sitting uh, in our church. And he loved when a, when a rhetorical question would come from the pulpit, we could count on Brother Ray to answer back from the congregation. And that was disconcerting when we first started attending there, but it, it became part of the worship environment and we, we came to sort of be used to it. Um, and it was all well and good as long as he gave the right answer. But then when he would give occasionally the wrong answer to a rhetorical question, that became a little bit awkward. So I'm gonna ask you today, don't answer any rhetorical questions. Just, just think it in your mind, okay? Um, so in this case, though, Nehemiah is asking these rhetorical questions. Why should I stop doing the work of God in order to come visit or talk with you? And they, they of course, go unanswered, but they reveal for us precisely what was happening here. The enemies of God who were prevented from directly stopping Nehemiah and the builders, they were hoping to distract them from their work and possibly even to do harm to Nehemiah. Well, in verse 4, we continue to see that they were unsuccessful in stopping the attempts of, of Nehemiah, in stopping the work of Nehemiah. But it was not for a lack of trying. We read here that they sent four similar letters, possibly suggesting slightly different terms each time, although they had the same evil motives with every letter. And Nehemiah was steadfast in rejecting these insincere overtures, and he maintained a strong focus on the task that God had given him. Well, having laid out these first four verses, let's take a look real quick here at what we can learn from Nehemiah. What is the first lesson we can take from Nehemiah's response to this appeal from his enemies to just talk? Well, the first thing we've got to understand is that while God's people are called to live lives characterized by love and kindness, we are not called to naivete or to gullibility. Okay, if we look even to the Proverbs, Proverbs 14 tells us the simple, that is the simple person, believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. And we are called to prudence and to wisdom. We learn from Nehemiah's example that it's absolutely imperative for us to recognize evil and impure motives within the hearts of God's enemies. That is our first very important lesson to take away. Jesus even tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that he is sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he instructs us then to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we all remember from Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent is said to be the most cunning and crafty beast that God had made. We even use phrases like sneaky as a snake to describe people who are sort of shifty. Likewise, in the same way, I think we are to be calculating and strategic as we serve God in obedience to his commands. Now this comparison is not to extend to patterns of dishonesty, uh, dishonesty or selfishness, that sort of thing. But, but this does not mean that we are to, uh, to not be wary as we go about doing the work of God. This also does not mean that through our cleverness and cunning, we are to avoid suffering for the cause of Christ. There are times that if you live a devoted life to King Jesus, you will suffer for your connection to him. But this is to be an unspeakable privilege for us. 
that those who hate God would also hate us. All right. So when we talk about being clever, when we talk about being um, uh, crafty, when we talk about being wise as we exercise uh, our, our good discretion in doing God's work, uh, we're not saying we won't ever suffer. We're not saying that we won't ever feel the hatred that is directed at our king. However, what we are to do is not be gullible. We're to model the pattern of Nehemiah, to be guided by wisdom as we do the work that God has given us. And wisdom would dictate that we be aware of the motives that are being employed against us. In our day, as in Nehemiah's, if we are to recognize evil and impure motives, we have to begin by rightly identifying who is to be trusted and who is not. In other words, who are the wolves and who are our fellow sheep? Remember, this was not the first time that Nehemiah had encountered these particular wolves. He knew that these were not men of pure motives. And as believers today, we should likewise be very cautious about connecting ourselves too intimately with people who clearly have no orientation toward God or to his word. Of course, we cannot completely segregate ourselves from all sinful people. That will never happen. The Apostle Paul teaches us that we would have to go out of the world to do that. However, our closest relationships should not be with those to whom we have no deep spiritual connection. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as an illustration. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 14. We're instructed, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership can righteousness have with wickedness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, in case you're tempted to shout out an answer to those questions, that's, those are rhetorical. A string of rhetorical questions that really drive home the point. A point that is echoed, honestly, in the old hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. So as believers, we are to be forging our deepest and most meaningful relationships within the household of faith. I think that is something that we do at North Hills um, pretty regularly. Uh, community groups are a big part of the ministry of this church, and we should be taking full advantage of those groups to forge relationships with people who are of like mind. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Nehemiah, you see, he knew that he had no part with these enemies of God, and he did not permit them to distract him from the work at hand. So let us learn this lesson from Nehemiah. Just as he did, we are to sternly reject the enemy's pleas to just talk. Can't we just talk? This is a tactic that's designed to foster entangling relationships and to create distractions from the life that we are to be living on mission for the kingdom of God. Let's turn our attention now to the next section of our text. Look with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 6, now in verse 5. Beginning in verse 5. In the same way... Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu saith it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these verses, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have 
uh, as you say, have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Well, the second tactic that we notice of the enemies of God here is one of public lies and personal defamation. Public lies and personal defamation. In verses 5 through 7, we see that in this fifth communication, there's a shift to a little bit different angle here. That being, the, the fact of the matter is, this letter is public. It's no longer a sealed letter. It's specified in verse 5 that this communication is in the form of an open letter. That would be different than the previous letters that presumably had been read only by Nehemiah. So what this means is the enemies of God knew and expected the contents of this letter to be circulated, to be leaked out, okay, by those who were delivering it to Nehemiah. In so doing, what Sanballat is attempting to do is to sow seeds of public lies and personal defamation against Nehemiah, to undercut his authority, to call into question his ability to lead the people. This should be a tactic, frankly, that we all recognize. Think about how often we hear news reports citing unnamed sources of information that accuse someone or some group of something terrible. It usually goes something like this. One outlet reports a vague, poorly sourced claim. Then others pick up that story and run with it, all the while being careful to use words like allegedly and according to anonymous source A, whatever, couching it in that language. But by repeating it so many times, all of a sudden it becomes part of the public's understanding of what truth is. And I think we have a term for this. I think it's called fake news. We've all heard of fake news. Well, um, it's been going on for a long time, long before we had a name for it. But fake news is a thing, and it was a thing in the day of Sanballat and Tobiah. Never mind the fact that the source of this story was never verified, never even questioned. Sanballat was attempting to affect Nehemiah's action through fear and intimidation. He knew that by leaving the letter open, the contents would circulate, and this could possibly then influence those who were working under Nehemiah's leadership, hoping that they would pressure him to come and meet with them, to do the reasonable thing. Well, there, are the, there were a number of lies present in this, and I'd like to point out three of those. First of all, in verse 6, we see that the Jews and Nehemiah are planning a rebellion. That was in the report. The Jews and Nehemiah are planning a rebellion. This should sound familiar to us because in Ezra 4, we hear records of another letter being written by Rehum and Shimshai accusing the Jews of rebuilding in order to rebel. That was a common accusation. The Jews knew that they had no such agenda, but the thought that others would be accusing them of that could make the workers very fearful and less enthusiastic about completing their task. The second lie that's present, also in verse 6, is that Nehemiah had a desire to be the king, that he was leading this grand building prog uh, project all for the, for the purpose of personal advancement. This accusation was almost certainly intended to get back to the king. Remember, Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem with a written decree from Artaxerxes to do exactly what he was doing. This was not some type of secret operation here. Um, Sanballat and, and his boys... They knew that if they were to weaken Nehemiah, they were going to have to separate him from the goodwill of the king. 
So this second accusation of Nehemiah wanting to be a king himself was undoubtedly a way of convincing King Artaxerxes to help put a stop to this. Well, the third lie that we see was that Nehemiah, in verse 7, was said to have set up false prophets for himself, that he had set up prophets to declare that he was to be the king. While the previous lies would have created division between Nehemiah and the king, this lie would have caused tension between Nehemiah and the people that he was leading. If Nehemiah had, in fact, set up false prophets to foretell his kingship, that would have been a tremendous sin against the God he claimed to serve. And it would go a long way to undermine his ability to lead the people. It would imply that he was leading the people in order to gain for himself power and position. Now we know, and we learned last week, that Nehemiah's selfless generosity gives us evidence that he had no such intentions. But see, that wasn't included in the letter. It was just a, a vague statement that people are saying, right? We, we hear it all the time. They say, you know, they say, you know what they say. Well, who is they? And why are we listening to they? Don't listen to they, listen to God. All of these lies were intended to defame Nehemiah and to trouble the people so that they would cease doing this work of rebuilding. Continuing then in verses 8 and 9, we notice Nehemiah's priceless response. He sends word back to Sanballat in verse 8, and he says that nothing you have described is actually happening. You are inventing this in your own mind. In other words, this is a figment of your imagination. He then points out um, once more the motive behind these accusations. Verse 9, Nehemiah could clearly see that this was an attempt to frighten the people so that they would stop doing the work that God had given them. And I love the final sentence here of verse 9. We see, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, in this sentence, there is some question um, about the, the, the form and structure of this sentence. Uh, apparently in the Hebrew, uh, the, the phrase, O God, is not actually there. That's a later insertion or maybe a clarifying insertion. And there's some discussion about whether or not this phrase is intended to be a prayer to God or a simple statement by Nehemiah, Nehemiah that he strengthened his own hands for the work. He committed himself to the work. Well, while it is debated as to whether or not this particular statement was directed to God, there's really no need or reason for us to presume that Nehemiah was not leaning on God every step of the way. He's already demonstrated himself to be a man of prayer, a man of counsel of God. So there's no reason for us to be bothered by, if you see that little footnote in your Bible, no reason to be bothered by that. We know that Nehemiah is leaning on God every step of the way. Well, what can we learn from this section? What lesson can we take from Nehemiah in this second section? as we look at how he responds to public lies and personal defamation. The lesson is this. We must deny without dignifying false accusations. We must deny without dignifying false accusations. When you are falsely accused, and I'm sure that this has happened to all of us at one point or another, when we are falsely accused or slandered, there's essentially two things that we can do. You can ignore it, or you can deny it in some form. And the lesson that Nehemiah teaches us here is to address the lies without granting them any undue dignity. It is possible to deny a false charge quickly without volunteering any credibility to that accusation. 
And it's also possible to deny a false charge in a way that creates suspicion and intrigue around the possibility that the accusation might be true. I'm reminded of the line from Shakespeare's Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. And that's been converted in our common parlance to be something like, methinks thou doth protest too much. Meaning that an exaggerated or a hysterical denial of an accusation often comes across as insincere, creating suspicion rather than settling the issue. We should heed this tendency uh, when we deny false accusations and remember to keep things in perspective. We do this in a couple of ways. First of all, we need to expect personal attacks. If you are living a public life in honor of King Jesus, you should live that life in full expectation of personal attacks. John 15, verse 20, we see, Remember the word that I said to you. This is the words of Christ again. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In fact, maybe I would present this question. If you are, if you are in the public, uh, regularly and, and you have a, an opportunity to be around lots of different types of people and you don't get persecuted for your faith, are you living your faith in the way that you should be? Are you genuinely being salt and light if you're not eliciting the attacks of the enemy? Because we know for certain that uh, the, the forces of evil are not concerned with people who are no threat to them. It's only when we are at the point of the, of the spear, when we are engaging with the culture, that we find ourselves coming under these attacks. And we should always expect that. Jonathan Edwards is particularly helpful uh, on this in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. He has a, a chapter entitled, Bearing Evil and Injuries. Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards. Men that have their spirits heated and enraged and rising in bitter resentment when they are injured, act as if they thought some strange thing had happened to them, whereas they are very foolish in so thinking. For it is no strange thing at all, but only what was to be expected in a world like this. They therefore do not act wisely that allow their spirits to be ruffled by the injuries they suffer. For a wise man doth but expect more or less injury in the world, and is prepared for it and in meekness of spirit is prepared to endure it. So I would call us as we endure from time to time unfair accusations, lies, slander, defamation. I would, I would encourage us to be prepared for that, to expect it and not to have it catch us by surprise. And let us count it all joy when we suffer insults for our allegiance to Christ. Well, the second thing we need to do to keep all of this in perspective is that we need to reserve our outrage for insults to our God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. We need to reserve our outrage for insults to God and to Christ. When we rightly perceive that our worth is only that which is imputed to us through the atonement of Christ, I think we begin to understand that personal insults are a very small issue. How quick we are to be offended by lies and slander directed us, while we sometimes grow accustomed to and almost accepting of the defamation of the one who died and rose again to purchase our salvation. The lesson that we can take from Nehemiah here is to quickly and directly refute these lies of the enemy while not allowing it to become personal to us. 
not allowing ourselves to be so bothered about our own personal injury, but rather be committed to the work of God. And if we take offense, we take it on behalf of Christ, not on behalf of ourselves. Well, having laid this out, let's, uh, let's move ahead to the final section of our text, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 10. Verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophecies Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The third tactic that we see of the enemy in this text is the tactic of false prophecy. False prophecy. Having been prevented from physically stopping Nehemiah and the builders, having been unsuccessful in luring Nehemiah away from the work for a meeting to just talk, and then having attempted to slander and defame Nehemiah through the lies of the open letter, now they are attempting one more tactic to put a stop to this building project, and that is the tactic of bribery to the prophet and, uh, of course, bringing about false prophecy. Look back to verse 10. This passage begins with Nehemiah going to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. Now, very little can be known about Shemaiah, and this has led, of course, to much speculation. Just because scholars don't know things, it doesn't prevent them from saying things, right? So there's lots of uh, possibilities of, what, of what's going on with Shemaiah here. There are many references, of course, to the name Shemaiah, particularly in the books of the Kings and Chronicles. So we know it was a popular name. And there are even two references to Shemaiah in Ezra that could possibly be the same person. But the reference in our text today specifies that this was the son of Deliah. Some have suggested that he was an imposter and not a legitimate priest. The fact that his lineage is known, though, has led others to conclude that he was an actual priest that had turned, that had been bought off. And that would seem most likely in this case. Whoever he was, Nehemiah would have had enough knowledge of him to go and hear what he had to say. We can contrast Nehemiah going to meet with Shemaiah with his refusal to meet with Sanballat and the boys at Ono. Okay, so upon hearing Shemaiah's claims that the enemies were coming to kill him that very night, and upon hearing his proposed solution of hiding in the temple, Nehemiah immediately recognized the nature of Shemaiah's prophecy. Notice what he says in verse 11. Nehemiah asked two questions, again, rhetorical questions. I love it, straight to the point. They are logically jarring in what they reveal about these suggestions. Nehemiah's first question is, should such a man as I run? He was keenly aware of his position, and he was responsible as the leader of the people in this building project. This does not mean that he was puffed up 
or that he was haughty or had some, some self, uh, sense of self-importance. However, he did take his responsibility to be faithful to God. He took that very seriously. We see that about Nehemiah as he asked the question, should such a man as I run? Well, then the second question that he, that he asks offers even more information. Could such a man as I enter the temple and live? As a layman and not a member of the Levitical priestly class, he knew that violating the temple regulations would most certainly and most surely mean death. Remember, if we, if we have any vagueness about how seriously God takes his ceremonial laws and his commands for worship, remember what happened to poor Uzzah. As the ox cart is pulling the Ark of the Covenant along and the ox stumbles, what does Uzzah do? He reaches out to steady the Ark and he's killed instantaneously, just like that. Because God had forbid that. Nehemiah knew that God had forbidden laymen from this particular area of the temple. And he saw right away that this would be a very, very bad thing to do. And he began to connect some dots. Nehemiah knew that his presence in the temple would be an affront to God. And he knew that a true prophet would not suggest that. Okay? He firmly stated, I will not go in. And then in verse 12, we see more information that opens our eyes to what Nehemiah is thinking and what has been revealed to him. We see that Nehemiah perceives that this man is not sent from God. Furthermore, in verse 12, we see not only uh, does he now understand that Shabiah is not speaking for God, but he also comes to know that Shemaiah has actually been bribed and paid by the enemies of God, Tobiah and Sanballat. Just a quick aside, this is not in my notes. I get in trouble when I say things that are not in my notes sometimes. But let me, let me just say this. <clears throat> when you couch false prophecy and, and untruth by saying this is from God, you set yourself in a very precarious position. Let us be very careful when we utter the phrase, God says. That is a, that is a weighty thing to say, and it weighs on my heart and on my mind every time I step into the pulpit. It is a very serious thing to speak for the living God. And this, this prophet, whether he was a phony prophet or whether he was a true prophet that was, uh, that was turned to the dark side, um, he spoke wrongly. He spoke lies and said that those lies were coming from God. What a dreadful and despicable thing. All right, back to the notes. Verse 13. This Shemaiah was hired by Tobiah and Sanballat to frighten Nehemiah into committing sin so that they could then go in to ruin his name and, and destroy his ability to lead the people. Nehemiah always was the man of prayer. He turns here to God and he prays. He actually prays for Tobiah and Sanballat. But it's not the kind of prayer that I would like anybody to pray on my behalf. He says, simply in that prayer, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to the things they did. May we all pray, Lord, do not remember me for the things I've done. Remember me for what Christ has done in me and through me and on my behalf. When I look to God, I want to pray for him to remember Christ and not me. Notice in verse 14 that Nehemiah also includes Noadiah and other prophets who also wanted to frighten him. This was apparently a widespread effort aimed at crippling Nehemiah's leadership. Well, having understood now the nature of this final tactic of false prophecy, Let's take just a minute and look at Nehemiah's response and see what lesson we can take away from this tactic. 
Our third lesson to learn from Nehemiah this morning is God's word always destroys false prophecy. God's word always destroys false prophecy. Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah immediately saw through this third tactic when he compared what Shemaiah was telling him with the revealed word of God. He knew that the revelation Shemaiah claimed to have was in contradiction to God's revealed will and God's word. The consistent principle in scripture is this. We are supposed to examine every proclamation and see does it run contrary to what God has already and clearly spoken and clearly said. If I speak a phrase from this pulpit that you can't verify in scripture, ignore it. If it's blasphemous, confront me, right? If anything ever comes out of this pulpit, may we be quick to lay it open with scripture and see, is this truly the word of God? Over 100 years prior to this instance of Nehemiah facing false prophecies, Ezekiel was also commanded by God to rebuke the false teachers of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we read this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and saying to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. We are to look to God's revealed will to evaluate whether or not the word of the prophets, in this case the word of the proclaimers in our time, are true. We also find this principle in the New Testament of God's word overruling false prophecies. Think about Paul's admonition to the Galatians in the first chapter of Galatians, verse 8. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is a passage that Joseph Smith should have read prior to establishing the Mormon church. Because it was, a, it was a revelation, an angelic type of revelation that led him to a different gospel than the one proclaimed in Scripture. So many of the cults are begun by these strange appearances and these odd manifestations that they claim as being the authority of their faith. But in reality, if you just hold to Scripture, all of these false prophecies are destroyed. Another example from the New Testament, the Bereans in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Remember what is said about them. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, these Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, the word of Paul and Silas, with all eagerness. And what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if they were true. Notice, they did not examine their feelings. They did not examine and consider their traditions in understanding the teachings of Paul and Silas. They searched the scriptures, and they were commended for their faithfulness in that. Well, of course, our, our greatest example in the use of scripture to, to fight off false proclamation has to be from the author and finisher of our faith. Remember how Jesus deflected Satan's sinful propositions by pointing out what God had spoken in his word. Specifically, he pointed to the, the, the writings of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. When Satan suggested that he break his fast by turning stones into bread, what did Jesus say? 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan challenged Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, that, that's, that's cute to me, that is, that is so pathetic, that the one, the eternal second person of the Trinity would be offered something that Satan, by the unimaginable grace of God, is still living in, is, is unbelievable to me. But when, when, when Satan offered Jesus all the kings of the world in exchange for worship, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, the fact of the matter is, God will never contradict God. And he has spoken to us clearly and definitively in his word. There is no shadow of changing in the thrice holy God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will stand. So when we are presented with false prophecy or sinful proclamations, we must go on the offensive with the sword of God's word. Make no mistake, we live in an age of unrelenting false prophecy and false teaching. Just scroll through YouTube for about a minute and a half and, and you'll run across an incredible amount of false proclamation. In the same way that Shemaiah claimed to be speaking for God, everywhere you look today, people insist that they have a fresh word from God. We must see this notion of continuing revelation for what it is, an attack on the sufficiency of God's word. If a supposed new revelation is corroborated by scripture, then it's unnecessary because it's already in the Bible. However, if it's uncorroborated by Scripture, if it's disproven by Scripture, then it is a lie from the pit of hell. So our option for fresh revelation, our two options for fresh revelations are this. At best, these modern self-appointed prophets and so-called apostles are irrelevant. And at worst, they could be demonic agents. People are daily deceived by these false prophecies. And we must have a commitment to Scripture that not only affirms its inerrancy and not only in affirms its infallibility, but it also affirms the complete sufficiency of Scripture. This third lesson that we need to take from Nehemiah's rejection of the enemy's tactics is that God's Word always destroys false prophecy. Well, in conclusion, we have seen in today's text that when the enemies of God were prevented from directly stopping the work of Nehemiah, they set out to distract and discourage him using three tactics. First, they attempted to get him off task by suggesting, can't we just talk? When this was unsuccessful, they turned to public lies and personal defamation to try to discredit the leader of God's people. When this did not have the desired effect, their last tactic was to hire false prophets to try and scare Nehemiah into disobedience. And when you act in fear, you often sin. That's a very good lesson for us to take from this. We are not to be people of fear, but we are to follow the clear teaching of God's word with boldness. Each of these tactics were then met with a strong response from Nehemiah, from which we learned three lessons. First lesson, when the enemies of God tried to engage in conversation, Nehemiah saw through their impure motives, and he held fast in his commitment to the great work that he was doing. 
Then, as Sanballat attempted to publish lies and defamation against him, Nehemiah quickly and directly refuted these false accusations without lending them any undue credibility by trying to defend himself. He was not bothered by the fact that he was attacked. He was bothered by the fact that they were trying to interfere with the work of God. Finally, in response to the false proclamation of Shemaiah and the other prophets, Nehemiah applied his knowledge of the word of God to destroy these false prophecies, not be led into fear, and not fall into sin. Every step of the way, Nehemiah refused to be distracted by the nagging and pestering interference of God's enemies. Had he yielded to any of these attempted distractions, he would have found himself in a position of sinful disobedience. So let us model the example of Nehemiah as we encounter similar tactics of God's enemies today. They're there. They are real. Let us learn from the lessons of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful, as always, that you speak to us, that you communicate truth to us through your perfect word. Lord, give us a willingness and a quickness to identify impure motives and evil motives of the enemy as we are attacked. Help us to not be bothered by personal attacks and lies, but to refute them and to keep our heart and mind focused on your glory, not our own. And Lord, as we, uh, as we see and as we evaluate the, the claims in religion today, may we always look to your word as the final arbiter. May we immediately discredit and disavow any false teaching that doesn't comport with your holy word and your scripture. Father, we thank you. We love you. We give praise to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.